thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. It would be interesting to see some statistics about what people of faith think of psychological and psychiatric attempts to deal with mental health problems. The sense that one's faith, one's God, should be enough to quell any inner turmoil would be a powerful force, but would it be a source of tension with psychology? We need to know more about this, which is why the Wolf Institute is undertaking a two-years research project, Faith in Mental Health, or FIMP if you like your acronyms. And that's our starting point for this week's Naked Reflections. The complexity of understanding mental health is one thing most scientists and people of faith would agree about. Here's Kit Arney on The Naked Scientist Show, Mapping the Milky Way. It's commonly believed that people with depression suffer from low levels of the so-called happy neurotransmitter serotonin. But research has discovered they're not particularly lacking in it. And two different drugs, one of which boosts serotonin, the other reduces it, can have similar effects on mental health symptoms. Our brains aren't a set of chemical balancing scales, and life is just not that simple. Clearly, much more work does need to be done into understanding the causes of mental illness and how best to treat them, while avoiding stigmatising sufferers, and for the one in four of us that suffers from mental health problems, that can't come soon enough. Joining me to discuss faith in mental health is Rabbi Danny Smith, emeritus rabbi at the Edgware and Hendon Reform Synagogue, who trained as a psychotherapist and is a previous contributor to this program and founding chair, I should add, of the Raphael Counseling Centre. So Danny has a foot in both camps. And joining him is Jamila Heckman, a blogger and writer about mental health in the Muslim community who's produced a report on the subject for the Muslim Youth Helpline. Jamila is in the final stages of completing her PhD, examining Muslim men's mental health. Well, welcome both. I think we can probably agree with Kat Arne's point about the complexity of this subject and that robust mental health is a hard-won achievement. Danny, have you found reluctance within the Jewish community to address questions of mental health? I think there's been a change over a a long period. Um, In other words, when I first trained over 50 years ago, there was a great reluctance and suspicion of mental health professionals and system, whereas I do think there's been over the decades more and more respect, acceptance um, and, and ability to use such things. 
I think robust mental health is not a one-off achievement. It's a lifelong process and all of us will go through ups and downs and, and times where we can use a bit of help. What's changed since you trained as a psychotherapist, Danny? I'm just aware that, that you were a psychotherapist before you were training as a rabbi. I was doing both at the same time. It was a strange thing because at that period, a very common kind of discussion in the public arena was psychotherapy and religion, friend or foe. Uh, and, and on the whole, it was foe. I mean, uh, I think at that time, religion saw psychotherapy as, as secular, as, as perhaps undermining religion and having little respect for it. And m- many psychotherapists at that time still saw religion as infantile and, and sort of a childish wish for a father figure, you know, which you have to grow out of, which you have to mature out of. Um, and that was a great pity because it meant therapists were missing what was perhaps most important to some of their clients um, and, and also missing out on the benefits that a community, religious community, can bring in support of clients. I think that has moved on. And similarly, from the religious side, I think there's been more humility that you were saying that religion can be the be all and end all. Well, it's not. It's It's got a wonderful you know, area of responsibility. But it, it, there are times when you might go to a doctor if you break a leg rather than just pray about it. <laughs> and does that resonate, Jamila, with the Muslim community in your research? Yeah, definitely. Um, the last point Danny made about um, going to the doctor as well as, you know, praying about it, it reminds me of a hadith. A man came to the Prophet Muhammad and asked whether he should leave his camel loose while he went and did something or, or to tie it up. And he said, tie your camel, but then also trust in God that the camel won't run away, basically. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot here. But it, it's kind of applied to mental health settings or life issue where it's, you know, trust in God, but also tie your camel. So trust in God, do the prayer um, side of everything, but also tie your camel, go and get medical help, go and see, you know, a counsellor, a psychotherapist. And what Danny was saying about early psychiatrist psychologist talking about religion reminded me I've been reading Freud recently and he's got a lot to say it sounds very Jewish Danny that combination of a bit of uh, religiosity and at the same time the practicality of tying up the camel I think Judaism and Islam have had a long history of respect for people's professional skills especially in the medical area Um, in the middle ages Maimonides the greatest Jewish philosopher was also an outstanding medical doctor, and there are many Muslim examples that are similar. So I I do think there's always been the possibility of of recognising the need for good diet and for good exercise and for sleep uh, and relationships. So all of that, I think, is part of the Jewish world and the Muslim world. But isn't there also religious resistance? I mean, it's one thing, I've got a broken leg, I need to go to a doctor. It's another thing to acknowledge my, my mental health worries and and challenges that I face. I sense that there is resistance amongst religious communities. I mean, what have you found amongst Muslim men, for example, in your research, Jamila? I think it's changing. I think resistance is moved down from resistance to more apprehension. I think there's a lot of fear of the unknown, maybe fear of, okay, if I go to the doctor, if I go to a counsellor, a psychotherapist, what does that entail? What does that mean? What does that mean for myself? Or what does that mean for the community as well? You know, will people find out about it? Will there still be um, a stigma attached to it? When I go and seek medication, what will this medication do to me? 
there is still stigma attached to it. It is moving forward, these open conversations where you can go to a mosque and they would have had a talk about counselling or go to a mosque and they would have had a talk about mental health generally. It's changing, but I think it's not quite there yet. I think there is a tension in religion. Very often the, the imam or the rabbi or the priest sees their job as teaching how to be that religion, how to live well, how to pray. And there's a kind of an assumption that if you do it all correctly, it, it should bring benefit. And I think that one of the reasons why we set up the Raphael Centre was to help clergy be able to refer people, because clergy often were nervous if a congregant came to you with a problem, the clergy felt they should be able to deal with it, and were nervous if they were sent the congregant off, they might find their religion being undermined in some way. And I think the other aspect that may be very relevant is that if you're a minority group in England, um, you may feel the majority group won't really understand you or or get, you know, who you are. Um, Or perhaps some of those old feelings of, and I don't mean to disparage the therapist, but the unconscious racism or sort of colonial assumptions that Western science is the only way to treat people. Um, All of that, that made the reluctance for clergy to refer people. And that's why we felt a a particular faith group counselling centre might be a way that clergy will feel more relaxed about sending someone. And definitely picking up your point about minority communities, the reluctancy, you know, seeing therapists. And this is something I've definitely come across a lot where Muslims are feeling like if they go to a non-Muslim therapist, would that person understand the importance of certain elements of their faith and if they see a Muslim therapist and they're talking about for example drinking um, alcohol would they then get judged for that it's kind of a almost sometimes caught between a rock and a hard place but I think that then comes down to educating people about okay what is therapy what what is counselling the confidentiality the anonymity that comes with with the process. What advice would you have on that, Danny, with your years of experience? I think it's such an intriguing one. I've not thought about that before, Jamila, the question of I'm a Muslim psychotherapist. And and on the one hand, my client is grateful or pleased that I am a Muslim because I understand a little bit more than a non-Muslim. But at the same time, uh, that question of judgment, that must be something the Raphael Counselling Services had to address. It has addressed it. But I think it is true that the communities can often be very conformist and judgmental and it makes it very hard for a person initially to to seek help. Um, uh, One of the reasons why we chose to work uh, in a setting where clergy, uh, where I'm working now, where clergy can go to either a rabbi or a minister, Anglican minister, is that they can choose whether they go to somebody who they might feel judged by or whether they go to somebody who's outside the setup. And, And there can be pros and cons for both. I was intrigued, Jamila, when you talked about the changes in the last few years um, and um, uh, partly in response to COVID. But there's also a generational shift, isn't there? And I wonder if you can uh, tell us a little bit about whether there's, frankly, a generation gap. It's hard to know where the generations are because I'm going to be 29 in a couple of days and I still think of myself as a young person and that's not quite I think of you as a young person, Jamila, so... (laughs) Um, I kind of look at someone like my dad's generation and he's early 60s. He kind of wouldn't really think about mental health. I don't think it's almost 
a concept and an idea I've I've seen quite a lot is that people of those generations, especially those who are Muslim immigrants to the UK, they had other things to worry about, is, is the kind of notion that I've heard, that mental health wasn't anywhere on the agenda because they were you know, thinking about how they're going to pay their bills, thinking about racism, all all of those things that happen when you first move to a new country. While I think those problems still exist, I think we're in a more settled position in the UK almost now amongst Muslims where we can start thinking about our emotional and mental well-being. That's not to say that um, older uh, Muslims never experienced any of these problems. It's just They were either labelled differently, swept under the rug. Um, I started volunteering in mental health in 2015, 2016, and I've seen a massive shift over the last kind of six, seven years towards more of a focus on mental health and mental well-being. My younger siblings who are 12, 13 and 14, and, you know, they're talking about mental health in school. They're learning about it. And that's something that I don't remembered and I went to the same school that they're at um so I think there is still this this massive shift almost I think there has been a generational shift um although my dad was a psychologist so he was much more aware in this area but his generation would certainly have been reluctant the stigma would have been there you should be able to manage you shouldn't need that kind of help if you're a real real man Many things have changed. I'm aware there was a whole period when there were many radio programs as it became part of the normal discussion. And I've also seen experience with my children in schools and so on, how how it becomes the normal language of teenagers now. And it's no longer a stigma. It's, it's just, you know, if you need help, becoming labelled is not terrible. It may be a useful way to access help. So it, it really has moved wonderfully. And I think it's partly moved, both because the therapies themselves that the therapists have become a little more humble a little more open to religion um, as being important and valued and that's been important and I think also on the side of the religion a little more humility a little more awareness that this can be a wonderful support system uh, and encouraging people to take it is no longer seen as a, as a failure of an imam or a priest or a rabbi but as a, as care for the community. Humility goes a long way. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests this week are Danny Smith and Jamila Heckmoon, and we're discussing faith in mental health. Is the psychiatrist chair compatible with the church pew? How is psychiatry regarded in the synagogue or the mosque? Digital interventions and social media often come in for a fair bit of criticism in Naked Reflections discussions, so we were interested to read a report about what sounds like a positive intervention in the Horizon magazine posted on the Naked Scientist website. It comes from the University of Lancaster and it's called Affect Tech. Through the Affect Tech project, they're developing a personalised low-cost toolkit using a range of technologies for individuals with affective health conditions like depression, anxiety and bipolar disorder. They aim to support people with mild to moderate conditions, some of whom may not visit a doctor but could benefit from this technology. Jamila, I'd imagine you would welcome this sort of research. It would be interesting to see what the remits of this technology 
is. It says that it can help those people with conditions like depression, anxiety and bipolar disorder. But I think we need to remember that a lot of mental health conditions sit on a spectrum. And I think that we still need to encourage people to see a medical professional if they're experiencing symptoms or at least someone to be able to assess where they are on that spectrum I don't think it can always be helpful to have only one method of um, support. I think you need to find what's right for you. This seems like a, a really great project, definitely for someone with, you know, more mild conditions. It could be something that is a good intervention for keeping and almost preventing poor mental health, but also kind of keeping someone on that steady level. It's the tailoring that I think comes out most from what you've said, Jamila, that each of us are individual beings and uh, any intervention needs to be tailored. Would you agree, Danny? Yes, I would. I, I particularly take the point that any one item, a magic pill or a magic wand, is not going to solve all the questions and that, you know, we can use technologies and, and chemical substances and, and human contact. All of that can help. And I do think... It's not a simple thing to, you know, to move from one state to another. It's a process. And I do think human contact can be perhaps the most important part of that process. And where does the social media in interaction come in? Because that's something that has changed dramatically in the last 20 years. But, you know, particularly in response to COVID with sort of recognition of how we can use social media, both positively and, of course, mentally. Um, what sort of social media interventions do you think can help people with their mental health issues? Remembering back to, you know, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when I first got Facebook and MSN Messenger and the kind of rules were don't put your life on the internet. And if we think about now, you know, I almost treat Twitter sometimes like a diary. Um, and I think that kind of openness has really helped people, you know, people are often posting in their rawest form. Um, and I think in some ways that's helpful because you can see that people can experience the same thing as what you're going through. It makes you feel a little bit like you're not alone. But then on the other hand, you almost have to take it like a pinch of salt because it can be quite dangerous if the person's only form of outlet or help for their mental health is through posting on social media. So it's almost like a two-edged sword. It depends how you use social media. But, you know, I think everyone's on social media now. You know, my grandma's got Instagram. Danny, it comes back to the point earlier that you have to have multiple approaches in, into this issue, that if you're dependent upon one, then you're going to be in some trouble, aren't you? Well, I think here we really are talking about generation gap, which is experience, because I, I use very little social media, partly because I'm scared of it. But I have been doing counselling on Zoom. It, it's been wonderful, especially in sort of lockdown periods, but also dealing with people in Scotland or South Africa, you know, in instant contact is wonderful. But it's not quite the same as sitting in the same room as somebody. And I know this is true for business meetings and, and other forms of contact. And also in religious services is something wonderful, being in a room with other people rather than being, you know, watching a lot of faces. So social media is here and it's here to stay. Um, there are dangers in it. This like and dislike, you know, when you just click a button and suddenly reinforce an opinion, does 
push people to extremes, certainly politically, um, but I think also psychologically, people find themselves in a narrower place because everything is is um, reinforcing a particular point of view because you tend to pick like-minded people and, and people end up in strange places. So I, I would love to find a way that social media can become slightly less strident and more balanced. Sounds like scripture, Danny. You know, there are plenty of aspects of scripture which are far too strident, in my view, whether it's Jewish, Christian, Muslim, or, or frankly, any other, uh, as well as scripture that can be much more compassionate. Isn't that fair to say? I think it's a very good analogy because the secret of scripture is to have good interpretations and to appreciate that there can be multi-level interpretations. There's not one interpretation which is the right one for all time. There's a whole process, and of course, in all great classical religions, there have been a number of commentators that commentate on previous commentators and dare to disagree. There can be a dialogue, there can be a, a variety of views, and I think that's very healthy and rich. Whereas if you get stuck with one authority saying this is the only way to see this particular text and this in our religion, then you do go down that narrow, narrow corridor which ends up in strange places. Whilst we're talking about sort of religious dimensions, Jamila, I'm not going to ask you uh, any Quranic questions, but I've always been intrigued um, by the observance of religious festivals in Islam. These um, young men, and they are young men, observe Ramadan. And I remember waking up in the house with a smell of eggs at about four o'clock in the morning because they wanted to eat before sunrise. And then they perhaps eat again at 11 at night during the summertime. And, And I'm just wondering whether that's really stressful or not. It's an interesting question. I don't know if stressful is the right word. I think when we're coming into the summer months and, you know, you have to start fasting at two in the morning and you can't eat until 10 at night, maybe I'd use the word, you know, stressful there because you're managing, you know, fasting all day plus your job plus, you know, a family if you have one um, plus, you know, you're trying to go and perform your nightly prayers at the mosque. I think it can be in those circumstances perhaps get a little bit overwhelming because there's a concept islamically where these other things have rights over you you know your spouse has rights over you your children have rights over you your job has rights like you need to fulfill all of your obligations and not just your religious ones I think that for your kind of general average Muslim they really welcome Ramadan as a time for reflection as a time for really connecting spiritually there's a phrase that often goes around on social media called Ramadan Muslim. And it's basically referring to someone who, you know, isn't particularly practicing all year round, but they make that extra effort during Ramadan. And while it's often used in a derogatory way, I like to see it in a positive way that, okay, maybe you haven't been the best Muslim all year, but you are going to make an effort for that month because you want to connect with God. You want to make those changes I think that, you know, people really enjoy the nightly prayers that happen. People enjoy waking up often as a family, uh, breaking fasts with different people. Of course, it would be stressful for, you know, someone with an eating disorder or someone who perhaps can't enjoy that part of Ramadan. I think a little stress is actually a really good thing. Um, It's when it comes distress that it's not so good. And I'm both Islam and Judaism stress that health comes first and that certainly in Judaism during Yom Kippur, if you have to take medicines, you should take medicines. And if you're pregnant, you should be eating. 
However, there are many stressful things in life which are wonderful. Weddings, in my experience, are really stressful experiences, but you know, we actually encourage them. House purchase is one of the major stressful areas. It helps you grow and develop. Bringing up children is stressful, I say, but nevertheless, it's most rewarding. So stress is not a bad thing. And I think in that sense, Yom Kippur and Ramadan can be challenging in much the same way as entering a competition or a race or something can be challenging. But it can also be tremendously rewarding and fulfilling. You mentioned, I guess, one might call religious illiteracy in the field, whether it's in local medical practice or amongst mental health practitioners. And that is an issue, isn't it? Is it improving? Is, is there a greater awareness of religious issues or is there still a little bit of a not a constructive tension, I'll put it like that, um, between the two? I think that it's something that is still there and that translates to practitioners. And I always go back to this example of a friend of a friend who wears a hijab. She went to see a therapist or a counsellor and she was talking about the struggles of, of wearing a hijab. And the counsellor was like, well, why don't you take it off then? And it's just kind of showing that there is still that misunderstanding of certain important tenants within faith. You mentioned uh, the word tension between the two, and I think that's correct, that they're not the same thing. They, they do have different trajectories. But if they work as allies, if they work together, the outcome can be very positive. And I have seen, certainly in the local council care system, as well as the NHS, the, the attempt to learn more about the group's minorities within the jurisdiction. Um, and I think that's really positive just as I think in the religious world that I'm part of, um, authorities have really moved to have more respect for a client-centered approach rather than teaching people what they should do all the time, regardless of, of their situation. Danny, how would you characterize Freud's complex relationship with the Jewish religion? Well, complex is a good word. Uh, he described himself as a godless Jew. And both words were really important. He, he was a Jew. He identified very strongly. He grew up in an anti-Semitic milieu and it actually got worse as he got older to the point of the Holocaust. And he identified more and more. And it was always very clear that his Judaism uh, was important to him as an identity, but he did not really respect religion or rather he, he, he saw it, as, as I said, as childish, infantile um, but nevertheless, he did think that the Jewish idea of God was positive compared to the pagan idea of God, because having a, a non-corporeal God that cannot be seen allows you to go into intellectual and abstract areas that he thought were very positive, also allows more introspection, more interior life. So he wasn't totally negative, and perhaps he did change over the years. Uh, his daughter, Anna Freud, said that when he was young or in the early stages of psychoanalysis he tried very hard for it not to be seen as a Jewish science but later on perhaps he was able to say that maybe it did grow out of that particular milieu which had intellectual discussion a variety of views the importance of words and text he felt there was a reason why it grew up in that particular uh, group of people that particular time so I think complex is the right word for it. There we must leave it. 
Thanks to my guests, Danny Smith and Jamila Heckmoon. And as always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to speak to the Samaritans, don't hesitate to call them. I know they'd be happy to hear from you. The number is 116-123. And you can follow the progress of our Faith in Mental Health project on the Wolf Institute website. Meanwhile, I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.